BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. My favorite thing we did recently was for Mother's Day. We recognized that there are a lot of mothers that weren't going to have the opportunity of physical contact with the loved ones. And at the same time, we know that small businesses have been impacted. So we partnered with some of the small growers. We purchased a million dollars worth of flowering plants. Then we went to Uber and said, hey, can we help support your drivers? And we had Uber drivers deliver these flowering plants to senior living facilities across the country, particularly in cities that were hard hit. To me, that's how a brand with a heart celebrates Mother's Day at a time like this. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. Today, on another one of our work from home episodes, we have someone who has seen marketing from the client and agency side, who has worked in many dramatically different sectors and has even left marketing a few times to be an entrepreneur. She has great stories and unique insights. She's now the CMO of Lowe's, Marissa Thalberg. Marissa is at one of the few companies that is actually growing through the pandemic and is providing an essential service and a focus on the part of life we're all focused on now, our home. Marissa grew up in New York, Bronx science grad, which means that she was really a smart kid. After an impressive Ivy League experience, she hit the ground running. 
ad agencies, TV production, her own blog for executive moms, and on the client side, her marketing experience spans a surprising wide range of companies, Revlon, Calvin Klein Cosmetics, Estee Lauder, and Taco Bell. She even sang cabaret in New York City. She's a role model and a mentor to many, a big thinker on marketing, and a good friend. Marissa, welcome. Thank you, Bob. What an intro, my goodness. <laughs> well, we're going to get into all of that, but first, I want to do you in 60 seconds to get going. You ready to go? I think so. Do you prefer sunrise or sunset? Sunset. California or New York? Tide. Mets or Yankees? Mets. Beach or mountains? Beach. Corn tortillas or flour tortillas? Corn. Quesalupa or nacho fries? Oh, man, that's like choosing children. I will say quesalupa. It's about to get harder. Smartest person you know? Besides you? Oh, I love that. <laughs> Childhood hero? My parents. First job? First real, real job was being an assistant account executive in a big ad agency. Last book you read? The Dutch House. Favorite app? I think I would be lost without Evernote. Secret talent? I, I think people would be surprised that I'm really good at puzzles. I bet you're getting a lot of use out of that right now. <laughs> Poolside cocktail? A nice, fresh frozen mojito. And what did you want to be when you were growing up? An actress or a lawyer. Let's get into the meat of it right now. So during your tenure, Taco Bell achieved record sales growth, the highest passion index among fans of any brand in the restaurant industry, and was the second fastest growing brand in the U.S. following only Netflix. How did that prepare you for Lowe's and this COVID-19 pandemic change in the American consumer? I think because I've had the benefit of doing things that, you know, people look at and think were bold or unusual. And I don't know that I saw them so much that way. It was my curiosity and my sense of opportunity and taking on a really interesting new challenge that enabled me to go from some of the things I had done earlier in my career to then moving on to beauty, to being a digital leader when I didn't necessarily see myself as a digital leader to then being able to make a massive industry shift with Taco Bell and now going to Lowe's. I think all those things have taught me how to really lead with an agile mind and connect dots that aren't obvious. And I think that's one of the greatest joys I've found as my career has progressed as a marketer and as a leader is when you've just done the same thing your whole career, you have a lot of expertise, but it doesn't necessarily give you other perspectives that allow you to you know, view the world in a different way. And so I really felt that that was the perspective I was going to bring to Lowe's. I come in with a sense of humility. Like I'm clearly not coming in as a longstanding home improvement industry expert. And that's okay, because if you counterbalance all the people that do have that with a totally fresh way of approaching the brand and, and creating a real connection with with people, which is our job, then I feel very equipped for it. Of course, none of us were really prepared for a crisis of this magnitude personally or professionally. But again, having to learn and onboard the company 3,000 miles away on a Zoom, I just said to myself early on, I just have to think of this as another test of leadership. Let's jump into that point. You obviously had a plan for Lowe's coming in. How did that plan change in this pandemic? In a couple of ways, I think that my plan was to be a little bit more sequential in how I tackled things. In an ordinary assimilation process as a big executive, 
you want to really take the time to listen and to learn and to ingest everything and have it tumble around in there and start jotting your notes and putting it together into a vision and a plan. And I didn't have the luxury of time to do that as much as I would have liked. So it wound up being very much like a parallel path of still having to do that assessment, but also immediately having to triage the work that was already in place uh, because the world was changing so quickly and so profoundly. And what would have been perfectly acceptable and relevant a week earlier was suddenly now potentially risking being just totally tone deaf or wrong. Everything's changing quickly. How do you track the change in consumer sentiment and the needs of the consumer that are changing this quickly and this radically? You know, I can tell you there's tons of data sources and there are, and I would say we're absolutely looking at all those. But, you know, I think part of the reason we're in our roles is because you better have a certain intuition and instinct for how this is all playing out and from the signals you're just seeing in culture, in media, and you got to put that all together to be able to make decisions in the moment, which is really what we were doing. I mean, this really was a first in terms of how truncated this all was, where I would be working on some new creative, so new to the brand, and then feeling like even a few days later, suddenly some of the nuance of that that felt right just a few days ago suddenly wasn't so right. And I think now it's getting a little bit more elongated, but this, what I would call maybe the first four to six weeks of this crisis being so prominent in the United States was very much an exercise of trying to scramble and and figure it out. And I think there's now been a lot written about the sameness of certain advertising that's come out. And, and I agree with that, but I also have a certain amount of empathy because if you think about it, we were all operating on the same insight. You were an early advocate of audio. You've now seized the lead and share of voice in audio. First time I can remember in this category, Why is audio important and what does radio do that TV or digital don't? I will tell you that for a significant chapter of my career in the 2000s, let's say, and a little beyond, I guess I found myself being an early digital marketing leader, which I found amusing because I always thought of myself as a marketer, but marketing was becoming digital. So my question even back then was, well, why isn't everyone a digital marketer? But there was that era where you had to lead it by kind of owning it. And so I found myself kind of being a bit of a biased champion for certain channels. And then when I was in a CMO role, I had the ability to be agnostic again and not just be championing digital, but really saying, I want to look holistically and champion what works. And audio also has a really interesting and important place in it, it was in our channel mix for Taco Bell, and it's for sure a big part of our channel mix at Lowe's. And I think it's because there's an intimacy that comes from the experience of how people connect to music or how they want to listen to news. And I think right now the voices of audio are particularly important. I mean, there is really a sense of having companionship and feeling like you know those people and they're really in some ways talking to you. And when we're all sheltering in place and feeling isolated, while on the one hand, audio has been known to be a very out of home on the go medium, and we've loved it for that reason, especially with our professional customers. But I still think there's a role for just, you know, that sense of relationship and the trust that you feel with those people. That's one of my favorite parts of working in this medium. It's interesting you're on that point. Your research is showing right now that the consumers are reevaluating brands during this pandemic 
and they're favoring the ones that have a mission to help the community. How is that factoring into your marketing plans and what are you doing to address that? Let me back up and say that at the outset of this crisis really hitting, one thing was clear is that we had to change what we were doing, but not everyone knew exactly how. I raised what I felt were a few key tenants of what was the right way to connect and communicate as a brand in time of crisis. And one of them was being much more about the relationship than the selling. And another was making sure we spoke with relevance and usefulness, that if there's a role for our brand to be heard at this time, people want and need us to be heard. And you think about brands as the new authorities of trust, even over political leaders, and that's not a partisan statement. It's actually been proven out through the data. It's sort of a bit of a commentary on the state of our world that we actually look to brands as authority figures. And that means that if we deliver on that trust, it's really quite magnificent. And if we don't, it can be conversely really quite a betrayal. And lastly, it is a time of social responsibility. And I look back on the work that we then did over just the next four weeks and purposefully or not, we checked all those boxes. And I'm really proud of that because it takes a lot to swing an organization the size of a Lowe's, you know. You know, it's interesting. Big businesses are valued again. How does that play into your marketing thinking? You know, the advantage of a big brand is you tend to have the ability to have a bigger voice. So I guess tied to what I said previously, you have the power of a large media sandbox to play and you just have to, how you choose to do it is up to you. This was not a time to go yell and scream promotions, really a time to reflect on what home means to people, to mirror the way in which homes were, you know, quickly being transformed in terms of living rooms becoming offices and garages becoming gyms. And it's just so relatable. And then using our social channels to create content that that reflects that even further and gives people examples and showcases users who are doing creative things. And so, you know, that sense of just being able to have a shared experience and connect over that, even through broadcast media, but also through social, when everyone's living these individualistic lives, I think becomes a real opportunity for a brand like ours. And then the, the reason why we've stayed open through this period is that, you know, we are an essential retailer and consider that two thirds of what we sell is non-discretionary. So there's the inspirational side of home improvement, which I love, but then the very real fact that if you're running a household right now and your dishwasher breaks, it's really important that you get a dishwasher or a washing machine to keep your home running smoothly and with cleanliness. So making sure that people understood that we were there for them through all that. My favorite thing we did recently was for Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, instead of just doing traditional Mother's Day marketing, we did something very different as we recognized that there are a lot of mothers, particularly seniors who are, you know, if, if they're in a senior living facility, this is a time where this, you know, the social distancing is particularly strict because of the health ramifications. And so likelihood is they weren't going to have the opportunity of physical contact with the loved ones. And at the same time, we know that small businesses have been impacted by this period. So to me, this was a real win-win where we partnered um, with some of the small growers um, that might be hurting a little bit. We purchased a million dollars worth of flowering plants then we went to Uber and said, hey, can we 
help support your drivers who we know are hurting business-wise, and Uber helped facilitate it. And we had Uber drivers deliver these flowering plants to senior living facilities across the country, particularly in cities that were hard hit, and brought some joy to um, mothers, grandmothers, and some motherly figures all around the country. That, To me, that's how a brand with a heart celebrates Mother's Day at a time like this. Before we dig into your career some more, I want to go back in time. You grew up in Queens, New York City during the 70s and 80s. Can you paint a picture of that world? What was important to you and the influences on you? Oh, wow. (laughs) I can. I was very lucky to have two extremely devoted, loving parents. I had a combination of a public school education and a private school education. I'm grateful for both. I learned a lot from both my parents, but I think the funny thing is I was driven and and they didn't even necessarily know why because they didn't think that they pushed me terribly hard, but I just had that driving instinct to get straight A's, to figure out my future. And so a lot of that was just really self-propelled. What was it in your environment that propelled you? Were your parents that way or was that you? Just because it's you, I'll be vulnerable and tell a personal story that I don't think I've ever shared. So I was in the local public school in Queens, and I was the kid that was getting straight A's. And in second grade, I was writing plays and casting my you know, fellow second graders in it. And in third grade, I started to get bullied a bit. The principal of the school told my parents that maybe they should tell me to stop being so creative, that maybe I'd fit in better. And that was such a horrific answer to my mother that my mother, who is the product of two public school teachers herself, realized they had to do something different for me. And they pulled me out of public school and put me in private school. You know, like any kid who has an experience like that, it was it was a little bit scarring. But I wound up having just an extraordinary experience at this private school, Buckley on Long Island that I went to. And then I went to this giant, albeit magnet high school called Bronx Science. So I had these like wildly different school experiences. And, you know, when you're young and I'm raising two teenagers right now, it's so hard to feel comfortable being yourself. I think that only comes much later. And my mom was just to this day will always be the most unabashedly authentic person I know. And I think one of the gifts of age and experience and rising in leadership is I think I've gotten much more confident just being that way, being truly and unapologetically myself um, and allowing that to influence my leadership style. And, and I think some ways that really actually build closeness as opposed to distance. You were talking about your creativity when you were young and you started out with an interest after college in film, TV, and production. But instead of doing all that, you jumped to advertising. Why advertising? What was it that captured you? So there are very few times in your life where you can actually picture yourself standing at at a fork in the road and seeing two paths and trying to figure out which to pick. But that point right at the edge of college going into my professional career was one of them. My career in audio actually started in college where Brown had this fantastic commercial radio station that was nationally known, and I did the news. It was pretty amazing. I was a college student, and I covered elections, interviewed the governor of Rhode Island. I loved it. But then I also had this rising appreciation for marketing, and I had done a great internship in advertising. And so I had a chance to go interview with a TV station in Plattsburgh, New York, which is up by Niagara Falls, and was told that 
the weatherman at the station, worked at McDonald's part-time to make ends meet. And then I also had an opportunity to go work in advertising in New York City, which was home, where I felt socially I'd be happier and I could dress up and go to work and, and frankly, be with my mom because my father died suddenly in college. And that was a very traumatic experience for all of us. And so I chose the advertising and the New York path. And a few years later, I did wind up uh, doing a stint in broadcast journalism. Uh, so I guess I hadn't totally gotten it out of my system. But it's just funny how it all comes back and connects. And I realize how much of my job today is about being a communicator and packaging information. But that was a real fork in the road moment. You started on the agency side and you had a pretty impressive career there. Saatchi and Saatchi, JWT, Tarlow, clients like J&J, Clairol, Revlon. And then you made the jump to the client side at Calvin Klein Cosmetics. Why agency to client? I knew I wanted to be on the client side because I wanted that sense of real ownership and stewardship of the totality of brands. It's just so funny when you're young and ambitious. Like, I was 30. I was now head of global advertising at Calvin Klein Cosmetics. I had a big team, but it was just a chance to really, I think, have influence, which was important to me and to be able to bring a combination of skills. But I'll tell you, a lot of my 20s was very angsty about why was I in this business world when I was really a creative person at heart? Because I wound up in the, what was the strategy side. And back then being in account management was, they didn't have planners yet. So you were like the strategic person. And I did love that. But I also had this bizarre or a little bit of a nagging sense of resentment that there were people actually named creatives in the building and I wasn't one of them. And I felt like I wanted to walk around with a big sign around my neck saying, no, I'm really a creative too. So I really struggled early in my professional life trying to reconcile who I was that way. Like, couldn't I still be a creative person, but really on this very professional track? And I think it's only later as I advanced in my career that I feel really good that it is integrated. But in those early days, it felt like I had made this weird choice and I wasn't totally comfortable with it. You had this analytical side going and you were struggling with your self-perception of a creative person. What did you learn, though, on the agency side that when you got to the client side, realized it gave you an edge? Well, I've said this before and I'll say it again. What I always have been drawn to about this world of marketing is this really cool intersection of psychology, culture slash pop culture and business. I like all those things in different ways. And, and the alchemy of that and putting that together is interesting to me. And agencies are good at that when they're at their best. Agencies are good at kind of mining what's happening in society and culture and then coming up with ideas. So I loved that. I was 25 and I had the Clairol account. And I don't know why I was empowered to do this, but I was the one writing like a whole portfolio strategy for how all the brands would fit together. And I just, I really did love that part. And to this day, I still find that kind of work really fun and really interesting. You know, we were talking earlier about audio. You were probably one of the first to sort of recognize this renaissance of audio. And as you talk about companionship and, and other aspects of it that other media doesn't provide and has a unique place in the mix. But you are an early expert on digital. Where did that come from? The role that put me on a stage as one of the early client pioneers of digital was when I started at the Estee Lauder companies in 2007 as the first 
corporate head of digital marketing. And and just to put a little bit of a timestamp on this, 2007, we didn't even yet say social media. So just thinking about that. My earliest presentations were kind of preaching this idea of something called Web 2.0 is coming, which was social media. So it's just kind of amazing. Like 2007 is forever ago, but also really not that long ago. And when I got hired for the job, I'll be honest, I mean, you put on a brave face, but I I wasn't even sure if I should have that job yet. I had done things that led me, of course, to get hired from back in my early days at Calvin Klein, starting first interactive marketing there. Literally, when the CEO said to me, this internet thing seems pretty important. We should have a strategy. I kid you not, those were her exact words. And that's how I started my journey of digital marketing and then founding my own website and content platform, Executive Moms, before anyone talked about curating content. It was just something I felt I wanted to do, to going to a multi-channel business as head of marketing and getting into the intricacies of how you can use other media to drive e-commerce. So I became self-taught because it was where marketing was going. And I had a real curiosity and appetite and ability to put it all together. And then I think equally important was I had an ability to explain it and motivate others without them feeling put off by it. I think that was my real success. I want to go back and pick up something you just mentioned. About 2000, you had your first child and you discovered a void for support for executive moms. You started Executive Moms as really a a blog newsletter, especially for women. How on earth did you find the time to do a second career at the same time you had a career? And what did you learn from that experience? I was absolutely terrified, had no interest in giving myself a second career. I didn't consider myself a bold entrepreneur. It was none of that. It was genuinely born out of a personal insight when I became a mom for the first time in New York City, bastion of work life, went to, you know, again, remember pre-social media, there was like one game in town for new mothers. It was this new mother's luncheon. And we had to go around and introduce ourselves, our baby's name, what street in the city we lived on, and whether or not we were going back to work. And all these moms are saying they're not going back to work. And I'm like, okay, this is New York City. Did you all marry guys who run hedge funds? Don't you want to have a career? In other words, where are my people? Um, Because I felt lonely and isolated and concerned and was trying to figure it out as new mothers often are. Well, fast forward, of course, I did go back to work. This was when I was at Calvin Klein Cosmetics or Unilever Cosmetics as it became named. And because of my connections in the media world, I would have lunch with editors and, and publishers of parenting magazines and say, what can I join? And I was shocked that these were the nation's experts on this stuff. And they were all universally saying there isn't anything uh, except Working Mother magazine, which didn't feel quite modern. And enough people said you should go start it that I did. And and because I guess I'm a marketer, the brand was instant for me. I knew the brand was going to be executive moms. I just love the dichotomy that you could be a serious executive and a you know warm and friendly mom all at once, because that's what I felt like. And lo and behold, our first event, because, you know, I knew how to be entertained as a client, was not a brown bag lunch. It was 150 people in a ballroom with a corporate sponsor and guest speakers and gift bags I stuffed myself. And that was the beginning. And then I just kind of kept going. We're going to be right back after a quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year 
by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. Oracle.com strategic. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back to Math and Magic. So let's jump back to your client job. Uh, you go to Estee Lauder, as you point out, you had this new digital job. How did you convince them that there was more than the beautiful print ads? Was that a hard sell? I mean, you were really at that era where the big print ads still dominated uh, companies like that. 
I would say looking back with hindsight as to how I accomplished it, of course, it wasn't necessarily this methodically thought through, but it was a combination of finding the early adopters within the organization, the people that want to try and partnering with them and getting some little wins and, you know, in a company like the Estee Lauder companies, where it's a portfolio of well over 30 brands at the time, it would be like taking the Origins team who said, we want to try something and or getting Mac, which was a cool brand to do things like that. But I think in terms of the bigger question you're asking, I had to find a way to contextualize this new world as not a betrayal of the heritage of these brands, but rather the right thing to do because of the heritage of those brands and because the Estee Lauder companies has had a founder, Estee Lauder, one of the great women uh, entrepreneurs of the 20th century. I don't want to say this was a light switch moment, but maybe it was. I found this wonderful archival photo of Mrs. Estee Lauder, probably back from the 1950s at a beauty counter in a department store in the heyday of that, with women surrounding her. And she was a real pioneer of that one-to-one sampling that you associate now, of course, with you know a, a, a makeup counter in a department store. But that was, she pioneered that. And I looked at that photo and I put a headline on it, just the photo and the slide. And I put it up and the slide said, Estee Lauder was the original social networker. And what I was implying was that were she still here today, she'd be the first one all over Web 2.0 or social media because she was the original one-to-one seller and technology was just enabling us to do that in no, new ways. And suddenly, I think it reframed this from scary tech stuff to really just new ways of communicating and relationship building, which very much was the heritage of the brand. So let's fast forward. 2015, you moved to Taco Bell big change in sector and product at big risk for you personally to say, I can do something that's that far from what I've done. What excited you about Taco Bell? Well, the funny thing is, Bob, I wasn't even really a Taco Bell consumer. Being a Manhattanite, I mean, my fast food was the local corner deli. And I say that not with embarrassment, but with acknowledgement that that just shows the power of brands is I didn't even have to be a diehard Taco Bell consumer to feel something when I heard that name. It interested me. It felt like a brand that already had a certain presence and culture, but also a lot of opportunity. So that's what drew me to have a conversation, but it really felt like a bit of a lark. I mean, getting on a plane, flying to California, have these interviews. I mean, what I thought was one of my hard and fast rules was that we were never leaving New York. And I guess that just shows it's good never to say never because conversations got serious and my husband and I got serious and we did what was really for us as a family unthinkable. And we relocated our family to beautiful Orange County, California, where we've been for five years and we absolutely love it. And as I'm talking to you, we're obviously very close to making another move again because of Lowe's. So in a way, the bravery for me with Taco Bell was less who goes from luxury beauty to fast food and more going from New York to California. You said you started with a lark. There must have been something. What yeah. was that pivotal moment when the interview process said, you know what, I actually want to come here to Taco Bell? It goes back to what I said earlier about everyone can see the dissimilarities between luxury beauty and fast food tacos. I mean, that's really obvious. 
And for me, the excitement was trying to figure out how I could draw connections and think about that brand in new ways. And what I started to realize, even probably before I started, was the way Taco Bell behaved. It was really like the fast fashion of food. I started to see commonality in those. Maybe it's just how my mind works in quirky ways. But I think that ability to draw the unexpected connections made me feel excited about the fact that I could come in and bring a fresh perspective while also recognizing that I had to learn an entire industry that was unfamiliar. Let me jump to brands. All great marketers have their own individual philosophy about brands. How do you think about brands? What are they? What do they do for a company? And how do you build and nurture and grow them? I think brands really are the soul of a company, the heart and the soul. And this feels like a trite thing to say, and I don't know how to make it less so, but you really do have to personify them. And you have to think about how they'd act and behave in a personified way in the world and then really get behind that. I love trying to get into the essence of a brand and bringing out its best true self because it's very easy in the pursuit of some competitive opportunity or some new trend to take a brand off kilter. And there are many, many incidences that kind of hit the business graveyard along the way of brands that fell off their proper path. And I think what is most important of leading a brand is that stewardship of how do you bring out the best of who it really is so it connects on an authentic level. But at the same time, just like the best people we know, you understand them, but then they surprise you in really interesting, beautiful ways. And those are people that are worth knowing. So let's jump to company culture. How do you build it and how do you use it? Well, I feel more comfortable talking about team culture because that's something a little bit more in my control than total company culture. Um, Not surprisingly, I believe that creativity is a really good energy source for culture. Some of my happiest moments in leading a team have been doing things that just bring out people's creativity. And again, going back to my my resentment in my 20s that I was in advertising, but not called a creative, I really do believe creativity can come from all sorts of phenomenal places. And I think speaking with openness and honesty and not being patronizing to people just because it's a hierarchical structure is a really, really important way of engendering trust and um, and getting people motivated. So let's go to you again. You're a mentor to many people, you're a role model. What advice would you offer to someone who's building their career and would like to be able to accomplish what you have, to be you? Well, I have to say, I think there's still a part of me that doesn't believe you when you say that that's how people see me. I still feel like I'm striving and still feel like I have so much more to do and achieve. So I'm flattered and a little, always a little in disbelief by that. And I guess what I would then say is we are in a bit of the world of short attention span theater, wanting instant gratification. It'll be interesting to see how this crisis maybe reshapes our behaviors that way. And there's nothing that still shines through more than someone who has a great attitude and incredible work ethic and humility along with just a tremendous level of curiosity and willingness to try. I worked really hard. 
in college, because it was pre-internet, I opened up the yellow pages and looked up communication companies and called them and said, I'd like to be your intern. <laughs> like, I mean, it's so preposterous and probably reflective of a very different era. But I just had that hunger and that desire to try and to learn and to do. Perhaps that explains it as best as anything. And maybe the, the means and the methods are different now especially in such a digitally enabled world. But I think the underlying ethic that drove that still shines as I'm looking to recruit people and mentor people. You know it. You know the real deal when you see it. So I want to end this episode a little differently than I normally do. Math and magic are the two sides of marketing, analytics and the creative ideas. You've done both. We talked about it a good bit today. Thinking about your career, what's your best example of one of your successes driven by math, the analytics side. I think it sometimes surprises people how data-driven and business-driven I can be because I want to win. And I don't believe that you just do that purely on instinct. I think it's beautiful when you bring those two things together. So whether it was bringing multivariate data and information to make decisions uh, in building a Taco Bell calendar that could exceed in terms of the business expectations the year before, whether it was you know, early in my career, taking a leap on leaving beauty to go be head of marketing for a home furnishings company. And what intrigued me was it was omni-channel before there was omni-channel as a phrase. And it was the data point that we could show how if we dropped a catalog that that helped internet sales and that in turn helped the retail business. So just again, using data connect interesting dots. I mean, those are just a couple of examples. I would say in my early days at Estee Lauder, really using all sorts of new data, like how you could show the correlation between a paid search ad and behavior and commerce and starting to say, actually, there's more science to this whole world of marketing than we've ever had before. That's been one of the real revelations of this era of marketing is how much there is and what we do with it, of course, is the continued challenge. So being able to take those as signals, that's how I see them. And then putting what I like to say, like the magic fairy dust on top of it, that's actually what describes this job for me in some ways better than anything. Okay, so let's jump to the magic side. What's the best example of the great creative idea that made a difference that as you look back on your career, say, wow, that, that was a great one? Well, I think about some of the things that really became giant headline grabbers at Taco Bell. What makes me proud about them is a couple of things. One, they didn't all have to be my ideas, but I like to think that I inspired that kind of thinking. And as a leader, that makes me proud. Two, when they happened, they hit people at this beautiful intersection of being so surprising and yet also making total sense. That is a really hard bullseye to nail but boy, does it feel good when you nail it. And a couple of examples are like when we launched our flagship restaurant in Las Vegas for Taco Bell and we thought about things iconic to Vegas and this idea of doing weddings within this Taco Bell location. But it actually really had a big underlying strategy as we were trying to push the brand into more of a lifestyle direction. And then that led to sort of this idea of Taco Bell parties. And then that ultimately led us to doing a Taco Bell hotel reservations for which sold out in two minutes. And it was so fantastical to dream a dream like that. And it all goes back to just feeling like such a strong steward of a brand that it felt right, even if no one believed it could be done. 
And that to me is creativity in a business context. Marissa, you've had an amazing career. You've got great stories and important insights. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Bob. It is truly an honor. So thank you. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Marissa. One, personify your brand. Marissa says that to understand branding, she gives it a persona. That way, it's easier to understand how your brand can not only exist in the world, but how it should react to the world or adapt in times of crises. Two, take on new challenges. Moving from Estee Lauder to Taco Bell to Lowe's might seem like a zigzag, but Marissa credits her successes with being able to take lessons she learned at one company and relate them to another. As Marissa says, working within different sectors has taught her to lead with an agile mind, connect dots that aren't always obvious, and bring fresh perspective. Three, as the world changes, it's important to use both data and instinct to track changes in consumer sentiment. As Marissa says, data is a key component, but without the intuition and instinct she's picked up from cultural signals, she wouldn't be able to make the right decisions quickly in the moment. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor, Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. 
Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.